This episode contains discussions that might be triggering for some listeners. So please feel free to skip anything that you may find disturbing. And also, do check the show notes for support. I've listed some organizations and resources that you might find useful. I felt like it was my responsibility to keep my father happy. So right or wrong was irrelevant. What was important was to keep my father happy. Like it was, I was told very clearly that this was making him happy. You know, having this relationship for him, he had never experienced this kind of love. And I guess maybe what he meant by that was pure, unconditional, childlike, innocent love. I met Nina Ganguli on a Facebook group. She talked so honestly about being abused by her father for most of her life. I was struck by how eloquent and compassionate she was while talking about the circumstances of her life. Besides being the survivor of abuse and trauma, Nina is also a professional life coach, speaker, Reiki master, author and podcaster. She shares stories of forgiveness, acceptance, and talks about releasing anger, shame, and the guilt of abuse. I can tell you that Nina truly embodies all of those things in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. And this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. This award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos, sex, sexuality, periods, mental health, menopause, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some inspiring women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. I grew up in a very multicultural environment, which was incredible for me growing up in a country that is is Canada, which is mostly Caucasian and the main cities are diverse. I experienced in my household typical South Asian patriarchy, and also experienced abuse for almost 20 years of my life, both uh, physical, emotional, psychological, sexual abuse at the hands of my father. And so, you know, I've had a very interesting life experience. If you don't mind me asking, what were the first times or memories you have of this, this abuse starting in your family with your father? So I'll tell you, I remember the instance in which something weird happened. And then I don't remember anything for years. You know, just that part, that particular part of my life. And then again at 13. So when I was about five or six, you know, all children go into their parents' room in the morning, right? My mom was at work. I went into um, the room uh, with my with my dad on a, I'm sure it was a weekend morning because he was home. And, you know, we were just you know, I was tossing around in the bed, jumping and jumping over him and jumping on top of him. He was lying down 
And then all of a sudden, it's like, it's wet. Like his underwear was wet. And I didn't know what happened. I didn't understand. I'm like, I thought he peed himself, honestly. And I had no idea that that's not what happened. Later on, he told me that what actually happened is he ejaculated. I don't even know kind of what to say to that. Wow. Um, how old were you? I think, I know I was in um, the house that my parents had just purchased. So I was between maybe five and six. Not really clear. I can picture them, like I can picture the moment. I, I picture it all. I even remember myself laughing. And then I don't remember anything. I don't remember what happened from that instance to uh, I was about 12 years old. Was I 12? Almost 13. And being in my room and my aunt had vis was visiting from India and uh, my dad was putting me to, to bed. I'm going to say in quotes for those of you who can't see. Um, and she came in and he was fondling me and I was like mortified. Not that he was fondling mm. me, but that she came in and she could have seen it. That someone had seen. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's the next memory I have. And in between, I don't have any recollection yeah. of what happened. Which is not surprising because it's huge trauma and your your brain's blocked it out because it's just too painful mm -hmm. for you to remember. Gosh, what was his reaction? So you were embarrassed. What was his reaction like? He just was trying to calm me down and calm the situation down and, and you know, reassure me that nobody saw that nothing happened. And, you know, you know, it's wrong. But he would always justify it in a way that, you know, we love each other. No one's going to understand our relationship. The way I was groomed and manipulated was that, you know, this was a relationship. And while it was a this taboo relationship. relationship, it was still based in, in love. And yes, it was based in his warped sense of love. And for me, my love for my father, not for him as a man or a companion. And I was too young for all of that. And so, yeah, that's basically how he would justify it. It's like, it's, you know, it's okay. Only society seizes it wrong, but it's love and under God's eyes and blah, you know, that kind of whole sentiment. So that I guess maybe for him, he could feel better about it. Of course. And do you have any memories of what it felt like for you? For me, it felt time? like I was playing a part. I was playing the part of his his wife because he would tell me that he, you know, my mother wasn't doing a good job of being a wife and that, you know, I was the only one that loved him the way he was looking for, I guess. Wow. It just gives me, oh God, I, you know, I can't even quite process what that is like. What about your mother? Did she know what was going on? That's a good question. So it's complicated. That's my answer. And um, that's the, you know, the beginning part of the answer. So a few years ago, about uh, three or four years ago, maybe, I was in a place where I was so still so angry with my mother and 
I, I thought to myself, you know what? I, I, I don't really care if she's in my life. Like, what is she bringing to, honestly, I was like, what is she bringing to my life? All I felt at that time was all she brings is she phones me up. She asks me to do stuff for her. And I feel like I've given everything to my family for my entire life. Don't ask me to do another thing. And I'm not interested. And so for a while, um, I stopped speaking to her. And then at some point, something said to me, I'm sure it was the God or you or it was God or the universe, but it was like, that's not who you are, Nina. You're not someone who stays angry. You're not someone who hates somebody. And is this the type of relationship you want to have with your mother? And a self-serving piece of it was, is this what you want to show your children? How I'm treating my mother is the way they will eventually treat me. And so I had a conversation with her about my anger and I did tell her everything that happened. And she said that she didn't know. She had no idea. That being said, there have been times prior to that where there's definitely been an indication of her knowing that something was going on. She just doesn't remember saying those things. And before I wrote my book, so I wrote a book called Confessions of a Cantaholic. And before I wrote that book, I needed to have a family meeting because I shared my story in the book. And in and the result of that is I found out later on that my my uncles and my aunts had some sort of inclination. They just felt like what they were seeing was inappropriate in, the, in our dynamic, my father and my dynamic. And they did an intervention uh, where my mom and my dad were both there saying what they thought was what they were seeing and what was happening. My dad obviously vehemently denied it. And my mom said nothing. And I didn't I had no idea this conversation happened until I had that family meeting telling my family, OK, I'm writing a book and this is what's what's what I'm going to write about. That's when they said we had an intervention where we thought something like this was going on and we came. And what was your father's reaction to that when they turned up and said this? Uh, his reaction was he was rude, obnoxious, aggressive and said to my aunt, maybe your father did that to you, but I'm not doing that to my daughter. Wow. And your mother says that never happened. Yeah, my mother said that conversation never happened either. So I realized, though, through grace and compassion, that she was also a victim of abuse and trauma. And her psychological reaction was the same thing as mine. Like, I don't remember what happened. And she's blocked it out. So I have to give her that grace. Absolutely. I suppose it's so horrific to see something like that being done by your husband to your daughter that I don't know how anybody would be able to process that. So she's done the next best thing, which is deleted all of that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we wow. do as human beings to survive. We do. It's, us. it's a survival mechanism, isn't it? Because there's nothing else we know how to do. Denial is sometimes the only choice that's left to us. Denial is the shield we often hold on to so very tightly. Because the option to denial is remembering something so horrific that it turns everything we know upside down. So we go to the only place that's possible for us, the place of denial. As long as we can hold on to the denial, everything is good and nothing is wrong. I had my relationship with denial for many, many years. I believed 
that I had a good childhood. I believed that both my parents had given me everything that they could. I believed that I was strong and that nothing could touch me. Well, one fine day, I lost that gossamer thin cloak of denial. An unbelievable pain took its place. It's taken years and years to process this pain. But letting go of denial has meant letting life in. The life that I was truly meant to have. A life full of pain and joy and sunshine and clouds. A real life. I think you said once you got your period, things changed a little bit. When I got my period, my dad was just more vigilant. I actually can't remember if like the first time intercourse happened was before my period or after my period. I can't. I think it was before mm. between the age of 12 mm. and 13. I got my period when I was about 13. But when I got my period, that's when um, he was just a little more vigilant mm. about protection. He became more, I would say, possessive, even more controlling, because now I was stepping into like being a young, a young woman into adolescence. And yet he was, yeah, more, if I think back to it, it was more controlling. The rest of the family. So somebody staged an intervention at some point. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a brother. He's 12 years, well, 11 and a half years younger than I am. So he probably didn't know what was going on, I guess. At the time, no, he did not know what was going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And he, though, also was dealing with psychological and, and physical abuse. My, you know, my my dad was, I guess, doing only what he saw his father do, which was yell all the time. Wow. You also mentioned physical and emotional abuse as well within the household. Are you happy to talk about that at all? Yeah, of course. So... You know, there's that saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. However, like it, I mean, most of us in South Asian families and back in the day, we all got spankings. But, you know, the spankings were, he was very scary. So, you know, his whole demeanor was scary when he, when, and I'm talking about my father, when he got upset and angry and yeah, and he would hit pretty hard. I could be, I would be so petrified just when he called my name in that voice that when I was young, I would, I would urinate myself. I would get so scared. My brother would begin to vomit. And so, you know, that's a type of physical abuse. I remember um, for my brother, it was pretty bad. It was like really bad for me. It wasn't as bad, the physical abuse, um, but for definitely for my brother, I don't recall my father ever being physically abusive with my mother, though. The sexual abuse, how long did it go on for? Many, many, many years. So it basically stopped when I met my husband and I could say, okay, this is this is the man uh, I'm going to marry and I, I won't do this anymore. Like to me, it was cheating. Like I was cheating on my husband to be by being with with my father yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time. What was going through your mind when this stuff was happening? I suppose part of it is blocking it out because it's too difficult and too horrible. 
did you as a child particularly have any concept that this feels wrong because as children sometimes we know and then sometimes we feel like somehow it's our fault and all of this stuff did you feel any of that what i can say what i felt was i felt like it was my responsibility to keep my father happy so right or wrong was irrelevant what was important was to keep my father happy like it was i was told very clearly that this was making him happy you know having this relationship for him he had never experienced this kind of love and i guess maybe what he meant by that was pure unconditional childlike innocent love yeah, yeah i really just yeah, feel like he yeah. didn't understand what it was to have a mature like mature love so when you met your husband and you were about to get married did did you have a conversation with your husband at all did did no, your husband know i didn't no. say anything to my husband until my father died so we were married for almost 7 or 8 years when he when he died and then i think even not right away maybe a year later after that 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 i told him everything i told him i had had sexual abuse happen but i didn't say who wow and what was your relationship with your father like once you were married well, we were i guess father and daughter even even though you know like that part didn't change he was he was an interesting man he was very charismatic very generous i never actually thought about that. that's a good question <laughs> um we were just we just had i guess a father daughter relationship there was a weirdness between us i would say mm-hmm. definitely there mm-hmm. was a weirdness because mm-hmm. the the dynamics of the relationship had changed and we had been in that relationship for so many years so there was a little bit of weirdness but there was always on my side this need to please like i had to you know before he came over i'd make sure the house was pristine and you know try and cook all his favorite foods and everything cuz that's the way i grew up so i think for my husband he would look around and be thinking well how come this not happening for me what's <laughs> yeah 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 and did you ever feel able to talk to your father about what had happened once i had um after my son was born i realized that i had had a i think i had postpartum depression and it went beyond just postpartum i think it, that initiated this this deep depression that i went into so i went to the doctor and i told the doctor what had happened in my past and she said you know you need to see i think you need to speak to somebody so i spoke to uh, spoke to a psychiatrist at the time and then felt that i needed to speak to my dad about you know everything that was happening and i did have a conversation with him and for him his response was his initial response you can get an idea of the type of man he was was well am i going to go to jail now that you've told the psychiatrist and i i guess i was surprised i shouldn't have been surprised but i was because he made this about him and it was more like no this is not to take it like this is not about you or sending you to jail it's in my in my brain it's too late for that and i don't want to do that i don't want to send you to jail basically i said all my life you made me feel like i was selfish if i ever wanted to do anything for myself and i'm want to talk to you about that and it was the apology was kind of flippant like i'm sorry if i made you feel that way you know i just want to make sure you're not i'm not going to jail 
that's not exactly even the beginnings of an apology, is it? No. Because I really don't it's think more he about thought he him. did anything wrong. He didn't think that he did anything wrong. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you think that comes from? That's a very good question. I wish I knew where it came from. This, I mean, these don't hap- these incidents don't happen randomly and in a vacuum, right? And, you know, I don't know a lot about the history of my father's upbringing. I just know that his father was very strict. Uh, I know that, you know, his mom was young when she got married. She was 13. And my grandfather was significantly older than her. I know that there's definitely mental health in in the family. And, you know, but nobody talks about it in, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, or like You don't talk don't, about yeah. that stuff. So I'm pretty sure he did not have this quote-unquote normal childhood. I know he left the house when he was about 14, went back, then left again at 16, and then went to Bombay at around in his 20s, I think. My father was a cruel man who did some terrible things. But I still remember this story that he told me. He was maybe 13 or 14 years old. His mother woke him up one morning and told him that he'd be going on a trip. This was exciting, he thought. Yes, a trip from his small, sleepy village in Kerala to that big, bad city called Bombay, as it was then called. My young father was sent off to start a new job, doing very hard physical labour, using a heavy hammer and tools to clip open tyres from trucks and cars. Hard, sweaty work outdoors in the sweltering heat of Bombay. He was only a child, So when his mother told him he was being sent hundreds of miles away, he asked her, Mother, when am I coming back? She replied, You're not. So yes, my father wasn't a very nice man. But I'm starting to think, perhaps he wasn't born that way. What impact has this abuse had on your life, on your sexuality, on how you see yourself as a woman? Mm. Well, it's interesting. Um, On my sexuality, quite frankly, I don't think there was an impact. And the reason why this was is, this is what I think, I I can only speak for myself, is number one, it wasn't violent. There was no violence around it. And number two, when I was about 13, I fell in big crush with this boy at school. And for 10 years, we had we had a sexual relationship for 10 years. And, you so know, you were 13 at this point. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. well, at 15 with with him, it started at 15. But we met when we were 13. And I think being with him was my way of normalizing sexuality. So, you know, I've thought about this a lot. Like, you know, it's it's interesting because I always knew that I would never like, this was not a relationship I was in with this this boy. This was, for lack of a better word, a 10 year booty call, but that's what it was. 
Uh, and I realized, I thought about this as I was going through my healing process. Like, what was the purpose of that? What was the, the lesson in that? I, I didn't quite understand. And then I realized it's what I did to erase. So one erased the other so that I would have those memories of, of my sexual experiences versus the ones with my father. How, if at all, have you made peace with this? I have it's made huge. Made how it's you know it <laughs> surprises me. <laughs> I know people. How a lot of people think of how how can you do that? It's a yeah. choice. You know yeah. they. You know what they say. You know, um, unforgiveness is like, you know, you you taking poison and expecting somebody else to to die. The unforgiveness had me be so angry. Does like so angry. That it was impacting everyone around me. I didn't even know I was angry. I really did not know that I was so angry until one day my husband came home and I just ripped his head off. I don't know. He just walked through the door and I ripped his head off for nothing. And he just looked at me and said, I just walked through. Like, how could I have made you angry? I just literally opened the door and walked through. And that's not who I am. And so, you know, the process of true forgiveness started about six years ago when, you know, I, I took a personal growth and development program and I realized, okay, I have a choice here. I can, I can choose to continue to be angry. I can choose to be a victim of my circumstances, or I can choose to draw strength from, from what I've learned about who I am as a human being. And so I decided, okay, uh, I'm just going to forgive him. Like, and it's easy because he was dead by then already, to be honest. He had passed away in 2007. I started my real, like, real, the real, real, real hard work in 2016. So it had been some time since then. Um, when he passed away that day, I remember saying to him, and well, while we're at the hospital, you know, I forgive you. But I think I said it because I've, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I felt like his, his spirit, his atma needed to hear that you know, to, to transition. And in the moment, maybe I felt it in my grief, but the truth was I hadn't forgiven him, nor had I forgiven myself. And in order for me to, to be who I am today, I needed to forgive him. I needed to forgive myself. And it was, it really was something I had to do so I wouldn't walk around being angry. Gosh, that must have been incredibly difficult. I don't even, I can't even imagine that journey from having this happen to you and then to be in a place where you feel forgiveness like truly inside that must have been a really tough journey the hardest part of the journey is forgiving self it's it's easier to forgive somebody else you know i love my father i'll always love my father that's where the guilt and the shame and the anger comes from because you know i was angry damn it i shouldn't love this guy look at all the stuff he's done it's just makes me so angry. And so, you know, it comes here. Um, you know, I was, I, I myself was interviewing somebody for my forgiveness podcast. And one of the things one of my guests said to me, which is so true, when our parents do things to us, we don't get mad at them. We get mad at ourselves. We take it upon ourselves. Like we did something wrong in order to be, whether it's yelled at or abused or whatever it is in the moment, there's several varying degrees. So the dif most difficult piece was forgiving myself. And I think it was being an adult and still continuing in the relationship when at some point I could have said, I'm walking away. I had like one or two opportunities, 
But the fact remains that I loved my dad. I felt it was my responsibility to keep him happy. And I stayed because I didn't want to break his heart. I didn't want to take that take that responsibility on. Do you mean this when you were an adult? Or yeah. did you mean this when you were a child? When I was an adult, you know, at 21, 22, this all, con- this all continued until I was in my late 20s. And so, you know, it was very challenging because I was berating myself. Why the heck didn't you leave? You never left. You never left. People are never going to understand, right? And I was worried, about, what are people going to think? Why am I thinking this about myself? And I just, it just came to the realization that, first of all, I was groomed to be in a relationship. This, to me, was a relationship, like a, like a husband-wife relationship, not a father-daughter relationship. And so being groomed that way, thinking that, oh, my gosh, if I leave, this man is going to fall apart and I'm going to be at the cause of that because that's what I was told. That's the responsibility I was given and I wasn't willing to be the one to do that. And I didn't have it in me until I fell in love with my husband because that's when I fell in love. I loved my father. I love my father, but I didn't I wasn't in love with him. He professed to be in love with me and I just played a part so that we could all just be okay at home. I read somewhere that the longest journey you'll ever make is towards yourself. Or maybe I made that one up. I don't know. I do know that accepting myself has been very hard work. Accepting that I'm fragile and powerful at the same time. Accepting that my body now has these wobbly bits that I'm learning to love. Accepting that love in all its forms can be beautiful and painful at the same time. Accepting that I don't have all the answers that I want in my own life. Accepting that I'm growing older, that things sometimes feel harder now. Accepting that I might want to accomplish so many, many things, but sometimes what I really need is deep rest. Accepting, accepting, accepting. The journey continues for me. And I suspect all of you listening to this. What's the reaction of the rest of the family now that you're talking about this openly? What does your mum say? What does your brother say? Oh, my brother. He wishes he could have done something at the time. He was a child. There's nothing he could have really done. And, you know, he says he wishes he knew because I told him after dad died. And when I got married, he was only 17 or 18, maybe 19. You know, I really, I said to him, there's, there's nothing you could have done. And, you know, he's in his, on his healing journey now. He's, you know, just stepping into it now. He is working through it. He's angry. He's angry at dad for what dad did to me. He's angry at dad for what dad, how dad treated him. And he's just dealing with that process. And my mom it's hard to tell with with my mom. I have my, you know, my professional and personal opinions on on how she's dealt with it. I, I really believe she feels she's dealt with it. My personal opinion is she's just put it in the side somewhere where she in doesn't have box. to look at it because she does feel guilty. Of course. I mean, 
just thinking about it, if you lived in a house with where your daughter was being sexually abused by your husband up until the age of 28, 29, it is impossible that she didn't know. It is utterly impossible. So the only way I'm, I'm guessing she dealt with it is by pretending it didn't happen. And even now saying when you're speaking to her to say, yeah, yeah, I've dealt with it. But it is in, how does one begin to deal with something like that? It's, you know? It is a challenge. And, and I can feel a little bit of understanding about that because you know my daughter uh, was dating a, a boy who assaulted her as well. And it happened under my watch and I didn't know. And so I've, I, I was like, how on earth did I not know? So I can, I can have grace and, 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 comp- and compassion for that piece. Do I feel my mother knew a lot longer than, you know, than she's willing to admit to herself? Yes, 100%. I just, just the way the, the dynamics, what was going on in the household, there, there's no way she, she wouldn't have at, had some kind of thought. Like if my uncles and my aunts had that thought, she must have had those thoughts as well. But it was just easier, I'm assuming, for her to just be like, no, that's not possible. Like, how could that even be possible for for her? So I have grace and compassion. There are moments, you know, when we're talking and I'm thinking, no, mom, you have not dealt with this. <laughs> you really, truly have not. I'm a professional coach. I work with people. I have a psychology background and I'm you haven't dealt with it. But what's most important to, to, you know, the gift that I want for her to give herself is grace and freedom. You know, when she closes her eyes and goes up to see her maker that she doesn't leave with guilt or regrets. I'm awed, I think is the right word to use, by your compassion to your caregivers who should have been looking after you. But instead, have inflicted this horrific abuse on you and your father directly and your mother indirectly, but by not stepping in. So they're both culpable in my eyes. Mm. And I'm awed at the sense of compassion that I pick up from you and forgiveness. And as you rightly say, you know, it, it, it burns the people who feel it. You know, I, I I get that completely intellectually, but emotionally, you know, it is impossible to even for me to even conceive how you left that go because I don't know it's just it just boggles my mind but I'm awed that you're able to thank you for sharing that thank you can you forgive someone who really hurt you who damaged you it's a question I ask myself very often forgiveness sounds like a selfless exercise But actually, forgiveness is more to do with you being kind to yourself than to those who hurt you. Because when we hold on to grief, pain, anger, it eats away at the core of who we really are. But forgiveness isn't about forgetting, because it's a personal choice. Forgiveness looks different for each one of us. For some, it might mean always remembering the lessons that life taught us. For me, it's about remembering the pain that someone caused 
but also learning to let it go. Because I don't want that pain to define my life. My life is bigger, louder, stronger, so much more. Do you think within South Asian culture that we turn a blind eye to things like sexual abuse in families? Yes. Yes. What was so f- interesting is when I was talking to my aunt and my uncle, so my, my mom's brother, and my, well, all her brothers are older, but her second oldest brother, you know, when we were discussing the short discussion that we had, what was interesting is a comment that he made when he said, oh, we've always known things like this happen in Bengali families. And I was like, huh? What? <laughs> what? I never heard, like, I'd never heard that. Maybe because I don't live in India and I'm not engulfed in the culture, but to say that there's this knowing that things like this, it's like, oh, this happens in Bengali families. To, to, I didn't know what to say to that. I was just like, huh? What? And, and so when somebody says something like that, that says to me, we've, as a society, given permission for that to be okay. And it's We've not okay. Normalized yeah. to some degree. Very it's normalized. Really and then there's also people who are completely oblivious. I was giving a talk at an event and there was an older Indian gentleman there. And when I completed my, my talk and there was open discussion, he just looked at me. And he, he apologized and said, I didn't think this happened in India. And I was like, are you living under a rug? Like, what is happening? Are you living under a stone? This is happening all the time. And I, you know, it's, it, it may not be known out in the public father-daughter or, or, you know, even there are mother-son issues as well. And we were always talking about father-daughter, but it happens at all levels. And I thought, do you not read the news? Are you not watching movies? <laughs> I don't understand how you do not know that this is happening. But what, what, he asked me such a poignant, great question at that time. And he said to me, so what are you going to do about it? And, I, and, and at that time, I thought, hmm, it's a really good question. What am I going to do about it? And now I have a podcast. And that's, you know, part of part of what I'm going to do about it to begin to have these conversations. And, you know, Sangeeta, I just want to honor you and thank you for opening up the door for us to have conversations like this in the South Asian community, regardless of whether we were born and brought up there or whether we're here, our parents bring the mentality in and we're, we grow up in that mentality. And all of our friends, our South Asian friends are growing up in this cultural agreement that we make, which is about looking good and not looking bad. It's thank you so much for saying that. It's an absolute honor to do this work. I I feel very privileged, I think, to do this. And I think what you said right there, that it's important for us to look good. It's important for us as a community to look respectable, to look all of these things. And that seems to be far more important than what is actually going on in our lives. And I think that's such an incredible sadness. I mean, when I think of sort of other women that I know, when I think of your story, I mean what 20 something years of the most horrific abuse and whatever the the message it was abuse you know you were mm-hmm. a child you should never in a million years have had that happen to you but to then have a double edged sword i'm sure of not really being able to talk about it for anybody to sort of come in for your mother for 
extended family to come in and kind of help you. It's that kind of culture of silence, I think, in our in our culture. It's very much a culture of silence, of keeping quiet, showing face, saving face, all of these things. <laughs> I'm 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 laughing because I, I just think, wow, what a lot of work we do. So much work trying to look good and not look bad, you know, and it's just so much work, Sangeet. That's so much work and it causes so much trauma and pain. And if we could just begin to release the need to look good, like, you know, you know what those conversations are like. Oh, my kid's getting A's. What are you kids getting? Oh, I bought a bigger house. Where's your big house? Oh, look at my car. Here's my big car. Oh, look at these new saris I bought. And, la, 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 la. and on and on and on. And it's so much work. Like, our mothers didn't have conversations like this. The conversations that I have with my South Asian girlfriends now about what a pain it is to be a mom, a wife, you know, this is the way things are. We, Our mothers didn't have conversations like that. So I think little by little, you know, podcasts like yours, little conversations that are happening, you know, I'm... I'm I'm part of a Facebook group. I think you're part of that same Facebook group, Malini's Girl Tribe. Uh, you know, conversations are different there. But these are educated women, you know, that have access to this. The, the conversation really does need to change at a more grassroots level for the majority of South Asian women. Because we really are the minority of South Asian women. We, we, we would like to think we're not. But when you look at the metropolitan cities in South Asia, there's not as many metropolitan cities as there are rural cities. And small towns. And and I imagine sometimes that there's so much trauma, right, in so many households, in so many small towns and cities. And, and there is no place for those women to take these traumas to. Where do, where do they go with it, right? To their grave. Exactly. And... And the weight of that, I think when you were talking in my mind, I had this image of this emotional labor that mm -hmm. we as South Asian women, we carry this on our backs. It's this heavy emotional labor. We carry this from the time where, you know, we can't even speak. We don't even know the words. And we, we learn that this must be ours to carry. The weight of our father's, you know, misdeeds in your case, or, you know, my father's stuff that he inflicted. The weight of all of this, the weight of silence, the weight of secrets, you know, that we carry and we carry all our lives. And how heavy is this load? It is a heavy burden to carry and it's generational patterns that need to be interrupted. And so, you know, you and I are interrupters. We are. You know, and some people do. love it. <laughs> some people some not people so much. Don't like it. Yep. <laughs> and that's you know okay. what I have to say. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too bad. We. It is time for us to rise up, not only as women, but as men. You know, we can speak about it, but until we're in partnership with, you know, the men that also continue to perpetuate misogyny. Things aren't going to change. And what blows my mind, Sangeeta, is we are descendants of the Indus Valley. Dece if people were to even know what happened back then, we wrote, somebody is the we that wrote the Kama Sutra, which is like, you know, who come, come up with 
kundalini and tantra and have a gazillion bazillion goddesses that men pray to and yet we're still here that it it blows my mind i'm with you absolutely blows my mind as well i guess the only way forward is to keep fighting this fight i think which is what you're doing which is what i'm doing and i know there are other activists who are doing this and i suppose by challenging these norms that we've been told is that's the way it is and you cannot ask questions and we're saying no hang on a minute we we don't accept this anymore and that's where the journey begins and then maybe the men will join us and they'll say actually because patriarchy doesn't serve men either you know they're as damaged by it as anybody else mm-hmm. and maybe this changes in the next couple of generations you know that's my hope oh i'm with you i'm partnering with you right there that is my hope and that it spreads you know across the land and not just for south asians but human beings across the world without partnership it won't move you know e- equality is not about one being better than the other right there are some feminists who don't like men and i can see why i can i can completely see why I'm a feminist that's really about equality. So every voice at the table gets heard. Yes, I know. I know the scales are are tipped right now. They're not <laughs> balanced. So we need to speak a little louder at the moment. But the hope Absolutely. like you said is in a generation or two this won't be a conversation and people will look back and think, "Wow. Whoa. <laughs> what the heck were we thinking back then?" <laughs> Nina, thank you for your grace your compassion your kindness the life that emanates out of you i think it's it's absolutely beautiful to witness and thank you for sharing some of these really difficult and painful things in your life with me and with the audience of masala podcast thank you so much nina for being on masala podcast oh thank you so much and just you know thank you thank you for standing in the front lines and having these conversations it's it's just so important so keep doing what you're doing and thank you I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, to hear inspiring South Asian women challenging patriarchy, a space to be exactly the people we want to be. and still feel like we belong in our culture and our community and ultimately a space where we feel less alone i'd love to hear from you so do get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or go to my website soulsutras.co.uk i'm also on twitter and instagram just look for soulsutras Masala podcast was created and presented by me Sangeeta Pillai produced by Anushka Tate opening music by Sunny Robertson Besharam Batmeez Gandhi Hi hi Bad Betty